please stand for the reading of God's word. Our scripture focus is found in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed throughout the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the seeds to all, as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke the bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. I have the privilege of leading us through our study of the scriptures today. So if you have your Bibles, I'm encourage you to grab those. Turn them open to Acts chapter 2, to the passage that was read so well for us uh, just now. Acts chapter 2. Now we're going to get back into our study of 1 Samuel next Sunday, but... We thought it'd be a good idea to, as we were kind of opening this new space and gathering uh, in this capacity like this to pause that series and to take a couple of weeks to remind ourselves of who we are as a church. We also recognize that there are new people who are tuning in online and gathering with us here and at our other expressions and, and we want to use this opportunity to introduce ourselves as well. And so last week, we did this by examining the final words Jesus spoke in the Gospel of Matthew, where he's hanging with his disciples, and he reminds them and commissions them of, uh, about what they are to be doing in the world. And we said last week that as a church, we are fundamentally a worshipful, missional, spiritual people, that under the power of the Holy Spirit, we rally around the crucified and risen Jesus, that Jesus is the point and the purpose for everything that we do and for all that we are as a family of faith here in Seattle. And as a result of rallying around Jesus, we're compelled by Jesus into the world to do what Jesus told us to do, which is to make disciples of all nations. And so one of the ways that we articulate that and express that here in our church is that we aim to discover the difference Jesus makes in all of life. And as we discover the difference Jesus makes in all of life, we want to help people do the same. And so we make disciples in that way as a worshipful, missional, spiritual people. Now, when we step into Acts chapter 2 today, we're kind of looking at a passage that provides the seminal description of, of who the church is to be and what the church is to be about. We have this moment where the church is birthed in the city of Jerusalem, and we see the church devoting herself to certain practices, to certain rhythms. And what you find in this passage is a blueprint for all churches everywhere, that whatever you think a church should be, if that church isn't this, then some course correction needs to happen. Because this passage provides us again with the seminal description, the blueprint for who a church is and to what a church is to be about. And when you open up Acts chapter 2 at the start of this chapter, you have a moment where Jesus' disciples are meeting together in the upper room in response to Jesus' command and instructions. 
After he met with them in Matthew 28, he then told them to, to hang out a little bit longer, to, to wait for the helper, the Holy Spirit to be given to them. And so at the start of this chapter, that's what the disciples are doing. They're obeying Jesus. They're meeting together in the upper room. They're waiting on the promise of the Father. Now to wait in the New Testament is just a euphemism for prayer. And so the church was gathered in that space to pray. They're talking to God. They're talking to Jesus. They're waiting for God to provide them with what he promised to give to them. That is his presence, his spirit. And as the disciples are praying in the upper room, we're told some wild things started to go down as the wall started to shake. And then what appeared to be flaming tongues of fire just coming and appearing on the heads of each person present. And so it was a wild scene. And, and then all the disciples started speaking in, in tongues or different languages. And you have this moment where God is empowering his people to go and make disciples of all nations. But it was a confusing scene, so much so that others assumed that the church was just filled with a bunch of drunkards, that they kind of dove a little too deep into the wine cellar early on and that everyone was drunk and this was some kind of wild party. And, and while all this is happening, Peter, one of the apostles, steps up and he brings some clarity. He begins to clarify what's actually going down by taking that opportunity to tell everyone there the story of Jesus. And he preached what many consider to be the first Christian sermon and the, under the power of the Holy Spirit, he's declaring the reality of Christ crucified and risen. And as the people were hearing this story being told to them, we, an interesting ha thing happens in verse 37 where the people are described as being cut to the heart. They are being, being pierced. And they don't know how to handle this teaching. They want to respond appropriately. So they ask Peter, so what do we do in response to this message? in response to this moment. And then Peter said, well, I want you to repent and be baptized. Now, I know repent and baptism, those are two churchy words that get used in these settings a lot, and we don't always know what they mean. But when we talk about repentance, we're simply saying to stop doing things your way and to start doing them Jesus' way. That when a person repents, that's what we're doing. I've been going about things my way. Now I'm going to go, things, go about things Jesus' way. And this is what Peter tells everyone to do. But then he also tells them to be baptized, which means to become people of grace, to become people who illustrate what has happened to you and what Christ has done for you by being baptized. As we said last week, baptism is the language of grace, that when we are baptized, we are being treated a certain way by someone else, being lowered into the waters and raised to walk in newness of life, that we don't baptize ourselves, we are baptized in that passive language, that passive voice is incredibly significant. He's telling the church right off the bat, look, you're going to do things Jesus's way and you're going to be people of grace, people who are receiving salvation, who are being transformed by the work of another, not the work that you perform in the world. And this was a very important message for everyone to hear. They were coming out of a, a hyper-religious culture and a hyper-religious setting, and they're coming to an understanding of the grace of God that would revolutionize them and that would have a ripple effect to the ends of the earth. And so what you have in this passage is the truth of the gospel being shared by Peter and the power of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon them. When you have the truth of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit colliding in the context of community, that's when you get the church. This is how the church was birthed then, and this is how Churches are birthed or planted or started all over the world today.
when the truth of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit collide in local contexts, tangible places, fellowships of people, that's where you have churches. That's where the kingdom of God appears on earth as it is in heaven. And so the church is birthed in this moment. And then notice in verse 42 that we're told what they devoted themselves to. Now that word devote is very important. It's kind of a key under a key verb, a key word in this passage. That they devoted themselves to certain practices. We're told that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. You know, people devote themselves to whatever it is they value, whatever it is they want, whatever it is that they cherish and love. And so here you have the church devoting themselves to practices that would fuel the love that has come alive within them as a result of the gospel. They are devoting themselves to that which will help them grow as followers of Jesus in the world. We devote ourselves to what we value. This is why I married my wife on July 23rd, 2005. I married her. I devoted myself to her because I value her. I cherish her. And here you get a glimpse of what the church was valuing in the first century. And what they're devoting themselves to in this passage is what you and I should devote ourselves to today as we follow this blueprint for what it means to be the church. And in response to all the things that they're devoting themselves to, some wild and wonderful things start to happen. You, You find displays of power as signs and wonders are being performed through the apostles. God is at work in extraordinary ways. You find people being generous and sharing their money, sharing their resources. You find people being careful. They are full of care. They are watching out for one another and loving and serving one another. You have joy and celebration just flowing out of them. They they couldn't eat dinner without even expressing joy and sincerity as they ate their food in that way. This is a people who are praising God and enjoying the favor of all people everywhere. And you find them growing as the Lord is adding to their numbers day by day those who are being saved. Now, I want to put four images before you that I believe capture the essence of these elements. That capture the essence of what the church is to be and reflects who we are to be in this city as we live out the gospel together. Four images that capture the essence of these elements. Elements. We refer to these as our core values. Core values that are resting at the heart of who we are as a church. These values that we want to embody and display here in our Wallingford expression, our West Seattle expression, our Edmonds expression. We want to display these values. Now, the first image I want to put before you is the image of a tourniquet. The image of a tourniquet. Now, the tourniquet, of course, is something that is used to bind wounds. Tourniquets are used to bring healing. And when you remember what happened after the people heard the gospel, the story of Jesus being told by Peter, it says that they were cut to the heart, that they were pierced, that in some sense they became wounded in response to what they heard. The gospel that Peter communicated, the story of Jesus, exposed the fact that this group of people, they just weren't quite right. And Peter would go so far to say that every one of them were actually culpable in the crucifixion of Christ. 
And this bothered everyone when they're realizing, oh, wait a second, I sided with the religious establishment of the first century Jewish world. I sided with the Roman government's ambitions and intentions to keep peace by crucifying this influential Nazarene named Jesus. Peter was telling them that they're all culpable and responsible for what happened to Jesus, that they were part of the problem. Now, of course, we know that their efforts to kill Jesus, to stomp him out, it didn't succeed. Because when Jesus died and he was buried, he didn't stay dead. He didn't stay buried. But three days later, he rose from the grave, revealing himself to be the Lord and the Christ, the anointed one. And once they realized that wrong guy, a a guy who was innocent, a guy who was actually the God-man who had come to save them, and that he died because of them, that cut them to the core. It opened their heart as they're realizing that life in this world just isn't right. And so Peter is confronting them with this story. And this confrontation is leaving them wounded. They've been cut open. They need two things spoken. They need forgiveness and they need healing. And so Peter steps up in verse 38 and listen to what he says to them there. He says, okay, in response to this fact that you were now wounded, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And so you have this incredible moment where the same story that cut the people open is the same story that would mend them. It's the same story that would heal them, that would bind up their wounded heart. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is the content of apostolic teaching. When it says that the church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, they, they're devoting themselves to the to teaching that centers on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. Teaching that centers on the fact that he is Lord and that he is Christ. He was crucified, risen. Now he's now reigning and ruling over all things. And he is the one that we are accountable to, which might create problems for many of us. But at the same time, he's the one who can remedy us and rescue us and save us. So the story of Jesus is both one that is confrontational and it is one that is comforting. And this is the heartbeat of apostolic teaching. Now, one of the things about the book of Acts is that the book of Acts was the second volume of a two-part work written by a guy named Luke. The same guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke would write the book of Acts. In, In Luke, he's telling the story of Jesus. In Acts, he's telling about the impact and the influence the story of Jesus would have in the world. And at the end of Luke's Gospel, there's this moment where Jesus is hanging with two disciples walking the road to Emmaus. And there Jesus clarifies to them and for us kind of what apostolic teaching should be about. And this is what he says in Luke chapter 24. He told the disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In other words, I'm telling you, the Old Testament was given to prepare you for my arrival. And to clarify to you and to everyone who reads it that I am the Christ. That's what Jesus is saying. But then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, this is what is written. The Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead the third day. 
and repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and look, I am sending you what my Father had promised. He's saying, if we devote ourselves to apostles' teaching, we are devoting ourselves to the story of Christ crucified and risen. This story that is told from Genesis to Revelation, and it takes the whole Bible to tell that story fully. That every passage of Scripture bears witness to this story that calls attention to the crucified, risen, and now reigning Christ. The Old Testament would do this in large part by way of anticipation. Anticipating who the Christ would be and what the Christ would be like and all the things that he would endure. And the New Testament tells this story by and large by way of reflection, by looking back on what Christ accomplished and drawing out the implications and the influence that Jesus intends to have on all people everywhere. And so by devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, I think we're seeing here something about what it means for you and I to cherish the tourniquet, to value the tourniquet, the story of Jesus that on one hand might cut us open, because the story of Jesus does declare that we're not right, that we misplace our worship too easily and too often. We don't love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We don't love our neighbors as ourselves. The gospel reveals that about us, and when we come to discover that, it cuts us, it wounds us, it leaves us in need. But the same gospel that might cut us open is the same gospel that can bind us up. This is why we press into the full story of Jesus and we consider all that it has for us to consider as sinners and sufferers journeying through the world that is en route to the world that is to come. And what's interesting, if you look at the end of verse 42, it says that the church also devoted themselves to praying. So you have the apostles teaching on the front end and then you have prayer on the back end. So kind of bracketing our spiritual formation is the tourniquet. It's elements of leaning into our relationship with Jesus to hear from him in the scriptures and then to talk to him in prayer. This is what we do as a people who cherish the tourniquet. You see, the tourniquet means we cherish the story of Jesus's ability to reach and to restore the deepest and most dysfunctional aspects of our hearts. That there's not a single area that the gospel can't reach and remedy. There's not a single distortion that the gospel can't shake out and restore to a place of harmony and hope and life and love and joy. And so we value the tourniquet for that reason. The second image I want to put before you is the image of a towel. It says that the first church devoted themselves to fellowship. That means they devoted themselves to one another. And they devote themselves to one another in an interdependent capacity. So you see these this remarkable description of how the church loved each other and served each other and gave to each other and cared about one another. This incredible fellowship or koinonia or shared life is being highlighted here. And this interdependence that the church seems to be modeling in this story is, is one that we want to capture as well. You know, the church on Sundays should not look like Century Field. You know, Century Link Field, you, you, you go there on a Sunday and you're going to see about 22 people who need a break and about 60 to 70,000 people who need some exercise. Well, the church shouldn't look like that. 
in the church of Jesus, where we're sharing life together, we're valuing the towel, we're saying that ministry shouldn't fall on the backs of a few. That ministry should be carried by everyone involved. That everyone should grab a towel, so to speak. And everyone should find some feet to wash. This was Jesus' final lesson to his disciples in John chapter 13. Just before he is betrayed, arrested, and tried, and crucified, he would hang with his disciples one last time. They're all together sharing a meal. And after this meal, Jesus stands up from the table. He grabs, he kind of takes out his, takes off his outer garment, grabs a towel, wraps it around his waist, fills up a basin with water. And then he just goes one by one to every disciple in the room, washing and cleaning their feet. And after he does this for them, listen to what he says to them. He says, if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you, should all, that you also should do just as I have done for you. He's saying in the kingdom of God, everybody carries a towel. In the church, everybody has a basin. In the church, everyone has a role to play. They have a service to render, a ministry to perform. And I've been so encouraged to see this manifest in the life of our church. So many of you are doing this so well. You're, you're leaning in and you're serving one another. It was, it was on clear display when we tried to get this building ready to open up, to host moments like this. So many of you leaned in and you leveraged your time and your talents and your treasure towards getting this space like this, washing each other's feet, so to speak, serving one another in sacrificial ways. It, it was a beautiful thing to see. And what was amazing about it is that it was a beautiful thing for even people who were currently far from God and do not yet know the Savior, even they were seated. There's a gentleman in the neighborhood who, he's retired now, but he's kind of a fixer-upper, handyman, and, and we got connected with him, and we invited him to come and do some work on our foyer. And we hired him to do some specialty work that we needed to do with one of the walls back here. And, and at first, he didn't want to take the job because he's retired, he has other things going on. After some conversations, he, he decided to do it. So he gave two to three days just to come here and to do this job on our behalf. And and as he was working and doing his thing, he saw so many of you coming in and contributing so much of your time and so many of your resources to, to working on other projects in the building. He saw love flowing between you, and this impacted him and it affected him so that when he came to the end of his job and we're getting ready to, to pay him for the work that he did, he, he denied it. And he donated his work. He donated his labor. He Provided, gave Kim, my wife, the opportunity to share the gospel with him. And he listened and he learned and he engaged and, and he donated his labors out of nowhere. From seeing the example that you guys were setting and being before him. It reminded me of Jesus' words in John 13 where he says, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples by how you love one another. This is the reality that we get to live out before our neighbors in this neighborhood. It's what we get to live out in West Seattle and in Edmonds and all the other neighborhoods that our missional communities are present in. We live out the love that we have for each other and put it on display for others to see and you never know how the Lord might, might use that. And so we cherish the towel, prioritizing love and service towards 
each other. Now, there are lots of needs in the life of our church that we want to encourage you to lean in and kind of grab your towel and run towards. You know, next Sunday will be the first Sunday where all three of our expressions will be gathering in person since the start of the pandemic. But in order for that to happen every week from next Sunday on, it's going to require everyone leaning in and taking up towels and washing some feet. Specifically, I'm thinking about kids' ministry. Right now, we only have kids' ministry rolling for, you know, newborns to three-year-olds. And, but we need to get our preschoolers, our four- to six-year-olds rolling so that they can have some time where they're hearing teaching that connects better with where they are developmentally, that they need older disciples to invest in them, loving and serving them with the realities of the gospel and teaching it to them. But in order for that to happen, we need people to grab their towels and to move in that direction. We have families who aren't able or haven't been able to come back to this time yet because they have all of their kids might fall under the age of six. And I don't know if you've seen kind of how difficult that might be to kind of corral uh, multiple kids under the age of six for a sustained amount of time. It can be very difficult. And so we want to wash the feet of these families by providing space for, you know, zero to newborns to three-year-olds and four to six-year-olds to to have some time where they're hearing the gospel and being cared for by disciples like you and me. And so I want to encourage you and implore you in that direction if, as we're kind of reconvening our church and reconstituting our church. Consider whether or not that's an area of ministry that you can step into for us. We also have needs on the music and media front. There are lots of things that go into hosting a gathering like this from running sound, running slides. We have a group downstairs that's helping with our streaming dynamics to get stuff out and connecting with people who might tune in that way for a stretch or for a season or for as a result of life circumstances. We have people running cameras, doing all sorts of things. And, and so you might show up on a Sunday and it looks like we might have our act together. And uh, we do try to put a good foot forward for the glory of God and And so we work really hard to kind of get all these pieces in place before Sunday. But just because you show up and you see all those things covered on a given Sunday, that doesn't mean there's not need in these roles. It just means we're working really hard before Sunday to get those needs met for that particular week. And so we need disciples like you to take up your towel, to lean in. We have wonderful teachers and trainers. There's not a single thing that we do that can't be learned by any one of you. And so as you consider helping us get all three expressions back up and running in person, we are going to need you to sustain that and to carry that forward. But since we are a church who values the towel, this is very doable. We love to serve one another. We love to love one another. We love to be together doing things for the glory of God. On Sundays, yes, but there's all sorts of other areas in our life, uh, in the life of our church as well. So you might consider, if that is you, let me encourage you to shoot an email to uh, some point persons in the life of our church. If you're looking at music and media and you want to lean in in that direction, you can email Jacob Hess, jake at hallowschurch.org. Shoot him a message, let him know, and he can help get you connected. If you're able to lean into the kids' ministry, We have a designated point person at all three of our expressions, and you can email them directly. Their information is is provided there for you. It's also available online. 
but these people are ready and willing to receive you and to equip you. Or if you just have general questions about helping out in other areas of the church, you can email uh, Jesse Haviland, Jess, Jess or Jesse at Hallows. It's Jesse at Hallows Church, full, full-fledged, at hallowschurch.org. You can email her and she can provide you with information you need on any other area of our church. The more people we have leaning in on these fronts, the less you're going to miss out on moments like these. Because you get a rotation going, and there's a few weeks where you're able to be present in here and not always downstairs, or present in here and not always behind a camera. Many hands make light work, and so we want to embrace that and carry that forward. Now, the third image on the for us is the image of a table. This is very prevalent in this story, as you kind of have in verse 42. The reference to the, to the breaking of bread. And then in verse 46, you have this idea of, of people feasting together. And there are two dynamics at play as it relates to the table. One dynamic is what we might call the Lord's Supper. When the church gathered together, they did commemorate the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ in a dramatic fashion. They partook of the bread and the cup as often as they gathered together in commemoration of who Jesus is and what Jesus had done for them. This is what we call the Lord's Supper. It's also referred to as the table, the Eucharist, Holy Communion. It's referred to different things. And the church would gather together to tell the story of Jesus in that way every week. And I love this aspect of the table because the table reminds us that that, it, that God is a God of grace, that the table is a place of grace. Because when you partake of these elements every week, you should be reminded of the fact that salvation is something you receive, it's not something you achieve. That salvation is what you take in by faith, it's not something you achieve or acquire through works and things that you do. And so every time we partake of this meal, we are commemorating and celebrating the grace of God on our on our behalf. And as often as the church gathered together, they would partake of this meal. Now, undergirding all of that, it's the fact that the church prioritized coming together, that the church gathered often together. They gathered in the temple. They also met in homes, house to house, that they prioritized being together. Now, the early church had reasons not to do that. The early church had reasons not to gather. They faced pandemics, like the plague. They faced persecution. There were lots of reasons why the church shouldn't have come together in this capacity during the first several centuries of the church's existence. But the church never gave up. And we have passages in the New Testament that tell us not to neglect gathering together and being together, rallying around Jesus together. So even when we say we value the table, we are emphasizing or undergirding that value that we do take this moment seriously. That this moment of being together should matter to all of us. And so we come together to be here and to celebrate grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I referenced him last week. So many of you probably have heard his story, but he was a follower of Jesus during World War II, uh, Nazi Germany, and he was a leader for the confessional church or the gospel-believing church, the church that the Nazis wanted to stomp out and silence. And, and Bonhoeffer, during this time of persecution and alienation when the confessional church couldn't gather, he wrote a little book called Life Together. 
And in this little book, he identifies the fact that when churches are able to gather, they should, because such a gathering is a gift of God's grace. And he's writing it to help people see, look, if you live anywhere in the world where you are able to gather with other believers to worship Jesus, you should do so. You should take advantage of that opportunity because brothers and sisters in some pockets and places of the world, they can't do that. And so when I read that, every time I read through that little book, which I do every couple of years, it, I'm struck to the core of how, how I so easily take for granted the access and the opportunities I'm given here in this country and in this context. And Bonhoeffer always sobers me up to remember, look, what you have now, you might not always have. So while you have it, take advantage of it. Prioritize the table by coming together. Rally around Jesus. Center your worship on Jesus. Remember the grace of Jesus. This is what we do when we value the table. But then there's a second dynamic, because not only did they gather at the temple and in house to house, breaking the bread, partaking of the Lord's Supper, there's a sense here where the church also just came together to share regular supper, right? Not just the Lord's Supper, but dinner and lunch and breakfast. They shared meals together. They came often in verse 46 saying they ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising, praising God. And so you have this moment where the table reminds us that, yes, we're a people of grace, but we're also a people of mission. That not only do we gather together, we also, we also scatter from being together in order to represent Jesus in different places and pockets of our city. And one of the ordinary places where we can live out the gospel and be the people Jesus is calling us to be is by sharing the table with others. By turning the mills that we have on a weekly basis into opportunities of, to display grace and to cultivate friendships and to live out our mission. We're not a very program-heavy church. We don't do lots of programs that we're calling people to come to. Our heartbeat is to release disciples into the ordinary cross-sections of daily life. To be ordinary people living extraordinary lives for the glory of God and one of the ways we capture and convey that is by saying, look, our tables should be turned into places of grace, community, and mission. That we want to take these ordinary moments of life and use them in extraordinary ways. And so we want to open up our table and share meals with people because meals have this uncanny ability to turn an acquaintance into a friend and a friend into a family. And that current is one we want everybody swimming in. And so we value the table as a, as a way of emphasizing our worship together, but we value the table as a way of emphasizing our mission, our ministry together as we are living ordinary lives in an extraordinary way, all to the glory of God and for the good of our neighbors. It's clear that the table was a place of mission for the early church because we're told at the end of the passage that the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And there was some point of contact between the church and their neighbors, some point of contact between those who were following Jesus and those who weren't. And I believe one of the key areas of contact was the table, that people were eating their food with joy. They were celebrating grace. They were being a loving community that was also open to anyone and everyone that they came across with, uh, cross paths with, paths with in their city. 
And so we value the table. And the fourth and final image to put before you is the image of the toast. Now you might know, I'm sure, that a toast is a celebratory act. It's a celebratory act that moves in an upward direction. You go to a wedding and there's always that moment where someone stands up and and life-giving words of encouragement are shared on behalf of another person. Sometimes stories of the past are told and a bright future is anticipated as, as couples are toasted. The toast is a beautiful, joyful, generous, other-oriented moment where we're looking to build and to celebrate someone else. Well, when we say that we value the toast, we are saying that we gather together and we share life together in such a way where we're constantly looking to build each other up. We want to lift each other up. So many notes are being struck in verses 43 through 47 that speak to this toasting culture. They, everyone is in awe as evidence of grace manifested through signs and wonders are being displayed. You see so much generosity, so much service, so much care, so much joy, so much sincerity. People are praising God and enjoying favor with one another. You get the feeling that this is a people that have been set free from taking themselves too seriously. They've been set free from taking themselves too seriously. They're just loving life together, loving Jesus, being together, liberated by the grace of God. And so they're toasting and celebrating and being Jesus' people together. So when we say we value the toast, we are saying that we want to recognize and we want to call out evidences of grace every time we see it. We want to be quick and proactive to encourage one another. And one of the ordinary ways that we do do so is through the use of words. It's by learning to use words well for the glory of God. We want to speak words that build faith in the life of those around us. We want to speak words that assure people that they are loved by God. We want to speak words that give life, that don't take life. We want to build people up, not tear people down. You know, tearing people down is easy. Tearing churches down is easy. We are an easy target to be torn down because we are imperfect people. We are works in process. We have not yet arrived at who we will be when all is said and done. And so there's a lot of room for us to mess things up. And there will be lots of opportunity for us to call things out that aren't right. But if all you do is tear people down, you're just a lazy person. You're a lazy thinker. You're a lazy speaker. We don't want to just, we don't want to tear people down. We want to use our words to build people up. This is how the church interacted with each other. You get into the book of 1 Corinthians and you read chapters 12 through 14 about how the spiritual how the spiritual gifts were being unleashed within the church. A lot of those gifts concern the use of words. And lots of those moments were, were when people were standing up and speaking words that would create faith in people and sustain faith in people and strengthen faith in people. That's what toasting is all about. And so let's learn to use our words well for the glory of God. Now, the reason we want to do this is because at the heart of the gospel, that's what happened. The gospel tells us that the word, that is God's voice, 
God's speech. The word took on flesh and dwelt among us. That God's word became human and lived the life that you and I could not live. Only to be torn down on the cross. Resurrected from the grave so that people like you and I might be built up. So that we might be encouraged. So that we might be given life. And if the word of God did that for us, we want to use words today that continue that ministry and that promote that activity in our lives as we journey through the world that is and route to the world that is to come. And so we want to lift our metaphorical glasses every time we gather. We want to lift our glasses and toast each other to the glory of God, identifying evidences of grace and celebrating it for all to see and for all to share and for faith to win out in the hearts of every person in our community. We want to be people who believe, who aren't driven by unbelief. But in order to believe, we have to toast each other. I'm too close to myself to see evidences of grace on a daily basis. So I need people to call it out. You're too close to yourself to see where God is at work at all times and to know for sure how God's grace is showing up and showing out in your life. And so you need other people to see it and to call it out. And so when we embrace the toast, this becomes one of our core values. That's what we are getting after. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace to devote ourselves to would you give us grace to see how, as followers of Jesus together, we might value the tourniquet, we might value the towel, we might value the table, we might value the toast. Give us grace to be who we are to be in this city for your glory forever and always. God, we love you and we pray that your grace would abound within us in Jesus' name. Amen.